The Movie Morgue Podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you want to learn how to support our show, please go to patreon.com slash doubledocmd. And now for this week's episode. Just wash it all, wash it all away, it won't you. Ladies and gentlemen, Autobots and Decepticons, welcome to the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm your co-host, Annie Neller. And uh, this is the Movie Morgue, where we talk about movies, dissect them, do a little bit of review, a little bit of critical theory, and just kind of, like, you know, nerd the fuck out. <laughs> That's Anyways, a good description. today we're going to be slicing into 2018's Bumblebee, a Travis Knight Transformers film. So this is going to be a fun one. Uh, so the first thing we like to do, always, is context. So Annie... What's your kind of relationship with, I guess, this This has just come out in theaters. We saw this in theaters. So, you're not, it's not exactly going to be a childhood favorite, but do you have any kind of history with the Transformers franchise, and kind of what were you expecting going into this film? So, my context for this one is a tiny bit different than for the past Transformers movies that we've reviewed. I've mentioned before that, you know, Transformers just wasn't a huge part of my childhood in terms of, like, the animated series was not a big thing for me. It, it just wasn't. Beast Wars, a little bit more so, but not so much the animated series. And, of course, I have seen all of the Michael Bay films, and I think that's where most of my context for this movie is coming from, is the Michael Bay um, films that have come out in the past, wow, decade, I guess it's been. You know, I found the trailer for this movie to be just really pretty arresting, particularly because it's such a departure from the tone that Michael Bay sets in his films in terms of narrative, in terms of the way it treats its female characters, uh, and also in terms of the emotional tone. This film had a, seemed to be trying to create this real sense of gravitas and to be talking about grief and peril. Uh, and, uh, that intrigued me. I was ready for something different. I wouldn't say I got my hopes up because it's still Michael Bay's production house, but I was ready for something different, and I do think that's what we got. So, um, I actually have a weird, I think, somewhat interesting history with the Transformers franchise as a whole. Yeah. Because I never really engaged with the media of Transformers until about when the first Transformers movie came out, and then I kind of engaged with it from... Somewhat of a distance. I, I like the movies. They're not good for the most part, but I find them entertaining. But I had the toys as a kid. I love that shit. So, like, it is a part of my childhood and it isn't at the same time. I think I might have caught, like, an episode or two of the... Actually, no, 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 no. Going back, I don't like OG Transformers that much, but... Um, Rainmaker Studios' Beast Wars was definitely a childhood favorite, and so was Beast Machines, Ugh, the sequel. Beast Wars was great. So I have a lot of attachment to the franchise, not so much the, you know, G1 original. And actually, like, me personally, like, I hang out on the internet a lot. I know a lot of people who are into this stuff, and I also see, like, a lot of, like, wiki drama and stuff. And <laughs> wiki the Transformer drama? fandom is... Oh, like people you, modifying you no Wikipedia idea. pages for Transformers and like getting into some kind of nerd war over it. Uh, not exactly. I'm, I don't want to get into okay. it in too much detail okay. because then that this becomes the TF Wiki podcast or whatever. I actually really like the TF Wiki though. They're very tongue in cheek. Absolutely, it's lovely. But yeah, and um, 
I was kind of meh on Bumblebee up until the first trailer dropped, and I went, hold up a second. Yeah. This is Mighty Joe Young. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember when you said and that. Then I, <laughs> and then I find out, wait a second, Michael Bay's not directing this one? Travis Knight? Wait, the Kubo and the Two Strings guy? Well, I'm excited about this now. So I was, I was kind of hyped for this one. What do we think of this one? I think this is time for the review portion where we say, hey, you know what? Did you like this movie? Did you not like this movie? Why am I doing the voice? I don't know. Annie, <laughs> it's did you like this Paul movie? McCartney. How would you give it? Very Paul McCartney. <laughs> how would you rate tra- Bumblebee I'm trying to on a letter grade? think of how I rated the previous Transformers movies because whatever my grade rating system is, I do feel like this is a step up from the previous films that we've seen. So if I gave any of the previous ones a B, I think this is a B plus, A minus range grade for me. Um, The emotional tone of this movie is just, there's so much going on in here about grief and growing up and PTSD, and I really appreciated the way that this movie explored those themes. Um, I, I think that it's a very flawed film, and it's you were definitely right like this is mighty joe young um the producers evidently also said that there's a bit of iron giant that they were looking to there i don't know that it quite meets that standard um but i think it's gonna sit right at that uh a minus b plus line for me like this was entertaining but it definitely had more heart than previous films how about you okay as as your local uh, animator slash yeah. Brad Bird psychophant. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and say no. But um, I, that doesn't mean I don't like this. Yeah. Um, as for me, I think definitely... I actually agree with you. I think that it's in the B, B plus A minus range. And I have difficulty deciding between the two. And ultimately, I'm going to, I think, slide it back into B plus. Okay. Because I think this would have been an A minus film... 10 years ago. Yep. I agree. <laughs> um, it's very much a callback to like these John Hughes movies and it's, you know, it's heartwarming and funny and like kind of touching in a way that I think at this moment in our kind of cultural tableau feels kind of saccharine. Like it's not, it's not so bad that it really ruins the movie or anything. It's just something that on reflection you're like, you know, we got too many problems. This is a film for a much more optimistic time. <laughs> I agree. This is an early 2000s film when, um, not necessarily when we had less to cry about, but when we hadn't figured some things out yet. Yeah, I I think this is a movie that could, like, this. I feel like the screenplay for this movie makes sense up until, like, 2005 or so, yeah. when it's just like, oh, yeah, um, we're the baddies. Yep. <laughs> yep. But that's more of a deep cut. So let's. <laughs> yeah. We we we've kind of agreed on this. I think B plus kind of I range think for this. So. Let's let's get into mechanics. Let's see how this film actually ticks. So first things, the absolute first thing I want to talk about, the transformer designs are way more fun in this movie. They are far more readable. Uh huh. I'm not gonna say they're. I'm not gonna say they're more. Actually, I will say they're more plausible even though we don't really get that much focus on the design themselves. And the way they move and emote is, I think, more fun. Um, Particularly what I think is great is people touch the Transformers. 
like way more than they do in previous films in the franchise. Yeah. Um, there is a sense of intimacy and like they're CG. They're absolutely CG, but they try more to make them part of the same world. Because I think if you look at previous Transformers movies, there's two layers of reality. There's the human scale and then there's the robot scale. And the Transformers can kind of shift into human scale by becoming vehicles, but then they can't, they can only be touched while they're vehicles. Beyond that, they are basically on a separate plane of reality. Whereas here, Bumblebee, like, he's very grounded. He exists. Yeah, exactly. So that I think is an impressive feat. Um, I don't think the CGI necessarily is super well integrated. I do notice, um, I do remember like one just particularly just nitpicky moment is when they're coming out of the, what's it? When they're coming out of the reservoir or whatever, or the dry dock, I think it was. They're coming out of there and I just remember looking at that and going, well, Bumblebee's not making any ripples. That's interesting. I wonder if that has to do with budgets, because I do know that this had a significantly smaller budget than the previous ones. Like, uh, I would assume it would be about half of some of the previous yeah, movies. Probably. So, maybe. I don't even think, like, that's, an, that's a forgivable sin for me, because, yeah, honestly... I didn't notice it, but then again, I'm not an animator like you, so I wouldn't. So I'd assume the average Because person. honestly, that was that was a location shoot. That wasn't like a CGI composite background. Yeah. So it's not like they forgot to add, <laughs> add like ripples. a physics effect to it. It's just it's just that like re- digitally replacing that water would be not like this hugely expensive venture, but it would be an expenditure for a payoff that I guess only I would really notice. Yeah, maybe. Because, I, because the other thing is like you could have that in there. And that would just mean that I didn't notice that. I mean, maybe some special effects people would go like, wow, that's seamless. But, you know, that doesn't really look out. What about you, Annie? Is there anything else that you particularly liked about this? I really liked Bumblebee's design. Um, Bumblebee kind of has these two little antennae on, on his helmet this time. And I didn't notice that in previous movies. So I'm assuming they did that for this one. Is that right? No, they were there. They just weren't as emotive, I guess, then, because they're used to their full potential in this movie. Um, they're dog ears. Yeah, they're dog ears. And as a dog owner, I recognize the extent to which ears register emotions. So um, I think that was something that I was definitely looking at throughout the film. And also just like the general emotiveness of Bumblebee's face as well through the use of um, different colored eyes and facial distortion and all that stuff. Like, the robots feel things, and they make us feel things, and I think that's one of the things that makes this film actually work so well. Um, There's a deeper sense of connectedness between the humans and robots. Like you were pointing out before, before it felt kind of like two separate worlds, and here there's very much of a connection, like it's much stronger. And I really like that about this film. I also liked uh, Haley Steinfeld in this role. I think she was a good pick. Um, she's a good actress, and like it's difficult to do this kind of uh, green screen work with CGI characters, and she pulls it off quite well. Yeah, I liked her a lot as well. Um, well actually, this is one thing I think... I, and I think this is one of my issues with the film, because this is gonna also going to be kind of critical is she's kind of punk and i like that 
But also this film is too corporate and too big and too, you know, mainstream to actually be any kind of punk. Mm -hmm. So it definitely feels like an artifice or an affectation, but I still like it. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And I, I, I think she puts that together better than the film does, if that makes any sense. No, that totally does. Actors can do that. Yeah, so I, and I think that's one of those things where it's like, this would have been better were I less critical and also were, you know, the world a little bit less cynical. Because I, I think when you look at, like, films from the 80s or the 90s, um, you could say, arguably, that people in the U.S. are misled, misled, are mistaken when they think that we are the good guys of history. But you can still plausibly believe that as a collective society. So, like, I, at that point, like, you know, you, you dig back more to, like, you know, Rebel Without a Cause and stuff, where it's just, like, it's this kind of harmless thing where it's like, yeah, you know, you're kind of punk, you're kind of against the system, but, like, it's all in good fun. And that's, I think, kind of the vibe I get from this. That is also the vibe that I got from it. And some of her wardrobe choices, like TBH, I had some of her clothes. I actually still have some of the clothing that she wore, like the 501s. I remember those. Um, I have a pair of 501s. So, like, yeah, there's a punk thing. And I think, you know, for those of us who kind of remember parts of uh, this time or like the time afterwards... There's a real sense of nostalgia, and the film taps into that very deeply, even if it is in this kind of, like, cynical ploy, you know, tapping into the whole idea of punk. Uh, she's also a young kid, too, so I don't know. Yeah. Maybe she's well, just getting into a, it. Here's a question. How hmm, how cynical do you think this film is? This is not something actually, like, this is just a deep cut, but I'm curious what you think about this, because I actually have some mixed thoughts on this. You know, I think the film makes some very sincere appeals to the audience. So I don't want to call this film fully cynical. But I do want to say that I think what the film is doing, um, as in what it's doing in culture, what it's doing for the studio, the kind of work that it's doing for them, I do want to be a little bit cynical about that. Because I think that studios have realized that the Michael Bay marketing model, the Transformers model, which was explicitly racist, sexist, you know, colonialist, everything, they've realized that that model is probably not sustainable in the current, you know, political landscape because of Me Too, most likely. And despite the fact that Bay made a lot of money, you know, from all of his films, I think they've realized that they need to capture a new audience if they're going to make a franchise that is sustainable, that they can keep going for a long time. And so to do that, they're targeting uh, younger millennials and members of iGen by appealing to their interest in issues related to gender equality, um, racial diversity in casting, and uh, their cynicism about the American military, because there was a lot more of that in this film than I've seen in the previous Transformers movies. And uh, I think they're also appealing to this group because this group is widely, um, this group understands the 1980s through film, not necessarily through experience or through historical knowledge. So, I think that that distinct appeal to, 
you know, John Hughes movies and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Like, that's an appeal to nostalgia. And it's a kind of nostalgia that's very marketable right now, you know, if you consider shows like Stranger Things or the reboot of Predator, right? Uh, We're all about the 1980s right now for some reason, which is really kind of fascinating. So... Yeah, I do think this film has some sincere moments, but I also want to say I think this is a very concerted effort to rebrand and remarket the Transformers franchise to capture a new audience so that it can create more movies that they know are going to sell. Okay, so looking at this film and the way it's written, and I think as a general vibe, and this is a gut feeling, I feel like it is quite sincere, but it exists within a cynical framework. So it's weird because it both feels sincere and cynical. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Like, I, I, like, I have some conflicts. For example, the, like, Charlie, Charlie's dad and the diving tape and all that. Like, I feel like it rides right on the line between oh my god, this is so heartbreaking, and okay, here comes the dead dad. <laughs> oh, man. And I, I feel like the whole thing does it, which is like, I think both a compliment and a curse, because it's like, th- I feel like that's w- where the tone rides for a lot of this film, where it's just like, it's good enough that you start to get into, re- like, feeling real, but also, like, calculated and focus-tested enough where you're just like, yeah, I see where this is going. And I don't think it really deviates from that razor's edge too much yeah. that I can conclusively say that it is one or the other. Yeah. No, I think that's actually a, a pretty fair assessment of what's going on here. And I don't know. I, I think it also has something to do with our age and perspective on movies since we've seen, we watched a lot of stuff and we've seen how the industry is shifting too. So, I mean, I think, that's part of what is that's part of what film is dependent on now is selling authenticity and that is a paradox in itself so yeah. that's what we get here um this does lead me to two thoughts though one i think this is kind of fascinating because i think this is the first i think this is the first transformers film that is a children's film i totally agree with that yeah yep yep this is a kid's and, film and so <laughs> In a way, I think this kind of criticism of the tone and the sincerity, I think, is maybe not necessarily relevant to the purposes and missions of this film. Because, like, I think someone without our life experience, like, like, I would have been all over this at 13. Just absolutely all over it. But, um, what was the second thought I was going to <laughs> Ah, I hate it when I do this. This is me I'm all sure the time. I'm sure it'll eventually. I'm glad to know that you do this too, <laughs> because this is me all the time. We've been doing this for two years, Annie. I, you should know this by now. I know. <laughs> but usually I'm the forgetful one. Yeah. Let's talk about John Cena for uh, just a second. I knew you were going like... to get to it. I knew you were going to get to it because... Well, that wasn't my second thought, <laughs> okay. but let's talk to John Cena. Let's talk about John Cena. Although that does play into this being... Oh, God, I'm going to get wrestling fans on me now. Just fucking Max Landis is just going to come at me on Twitter and just talk about how wrestling is totally for adults, you guys. Well, there are those of us that watch it. 
um, for our own very specific scholarly reasons. Uh, and then there are also other people who are entertained by it for the irony of it. And then there are also people who have bought into the idea that it is entirely real. And so there are many groups of people who watch wrestling and know things about John Cena, unfortunately. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I wish he was invisible, but he wasn't in this movie. He was all over it. Uh, how did you feel about John Cena in this movie? I liked him in this. It's a very it's a very simplistic role, but I feel like he carries it well. There's a bit of charisma to it. And also, like, he... We, we, we had this discussion before we started recording about John Cena and kind of his career. And if he was born 40 years earlier, he would have been like Arnie Big. Because he fits that same mold very well. He's got a very distinct face. He's got like this great blocky physiology. And like in a, in a time of action stars, he could have been huge. And so it's weird because like, I think you described him as, like, a cross between Van Damme and Schwarzenegger yeah. in this film. Yeah. And it's just kind of on the money there. I like him. He It's very one note, but it's also friendly. And there's a little bit of comedy chops to him there. I love the thing with the paintball gun. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, was, that was a great moment. And I think that moment is actually pretty indicative of the kind of work that John Cena can do really well. He's a really good comedic face. Um, in person, John Cena is very charming and he's very witty, and that comes out in some of the writing that the WWE has done for him. And I'm saying this as a regular wrestling watcher. I do watch wrestling a lot because I'm interested in the WWE as kind of like this broader sphere of conversation about race and gender that is not going to get talked about by a lot of academics because it's considered quote-unquote low culture. So, um, you know, and John Cena has been a major part of that. His character, as he was marketed um, slightly earlier on than now, <laughs> was as this uh, white rapper who was just into dissing people. And it was the kind of persona that was semi-mocking other white rappers, but also partly sincere, too. And I think that's his strong suit. His strong suit is being a comedic face. And as I understand it, what happened in this movie was the screenwriters attempted to write John Cena as a heel named Scarface. And basically, this didn't test well, people didn't like it, so they had to rewrite his role, which is probably why his characterization in this movie is so uneven. And, you know, I just... He's been working in the WWE for however long. Like, honestly, just ask some of the writers whether that would work literally just a few questions to see whether they could market that um and I think they wouldn't have had as many issues as they did in writing for him um I think he's the right face for this movie he's got that kind of square jaw he does have the look of an 80s action movie star but I think that the writing for him was conspicuously poor and didn't take advantage of his strengths as a comedic face See, I think this is one of those things that might fall into the category of just ironic enjoyment for me. Yeah. Because... And that's okay, too. He, <laughs> I, I think one thing that we talk about when we talk about films in the 80s and 90s is, like, the, the superstars, the megastars, the blockbuster kings. And one thing was when, like, when you're watching, you know, Rocky or Rambo, you're like, you're not seeing Rocky or Rambo, you're seeing Stallone. When you watch Terminator, you see Schwarzenegger. You recognize them 
And you see them inhabit this role, but their faces are famous enough and well-associated enough. Like, you don't see a De Niro film and necessarily, I think, unless you're having, like, this really good time and he's on, like, peak performance, you don't dis- you don't really delineate between the character and De Niro. Mm. Until so some of his later I feel songs. like... Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And I think for John Cena in this particular case, it's just like, hey, there's John Cena. It's like, hey, there's that, you know, wrestling baby blue boy. <laughs> and it just, like, it, it adds a little bit of a smirk and a little bit of funniness to it. Yeah. And honestly, unless he delivered, like, a absolute standout performance as a heel, and I don't mean something that can be read from a stage from the back row seats. Yeah. I mean, like, something with some subtlety, which I I don't think is necessarily in his range. That is not his strong suit. Um, <laughs> subtlety. Unless, unless he gave, like, this really powerful performance, then I think, like, I would not be able to take him seriously as a villain. So I kind of like that he's this kind of, like, oh, I'm American soldier man. Um... I'm grim and tough, but fair. Oh, no, you're, you're a good robot. I'm going to help you. Get on out of here. Now get, you know? Like, it's... You, you see what I say? When I, when no, I say I it like totally this, it just... It. it gets That fun. accent was amazing. <laughs> so, like, I kind of like that because here's the thing. Yeah. You say, like, Cena's image in the WWE and so on, is that, you know, he's this, like, you know, lone wolf Jason he's... Bourne type. Well, now, well in the movies, my... in in the WWE itself, he's a face figure. He's kind of like this, I don't know, he's a guy who gives kids hugs on camera. So he's not exactly well, that, that's, Jason that's, Bourne in the ring. That's exactly what I was going to get at, is my perspective from an outsider, someone who doesn't watch or really follow wrestling at all. To my mind, John Cena is kind of a goon in that like he's this like all-american baby blue-eyed like lovable idiot who's kind of a lunk like everything like you got that whole you know you don't see me are you sure about that meme and so on but everything that i know about john cena is that he's presented as being good to the point of naivete almost I mean, like, his earlier character, <laughs> when they tried to debut him, like, he was supposed to be a trash-talking white rapper. Um, and his character has definitely evolved since then into the character that I think you're talking about, which is more about positivity, um, still doing the trash-talking thing, which is fine, and he has quite the fan following. So I guess I can, I can kind of see where you're going with that. I mean, for fuck's sake, the man is in Scooby-Doo movies. Was he really? I know that he was in that one Amy oh, you, Schumer movie. You, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, you don't know about the Scooby-Doo movies? No, wait, John still Cena making was those. in a Scooby-Doo movie? The Scooby-Doo animated movies. Wait, what? <laughs> that's like... Oh, no, that's like prime You don't know about the Scooby-Doo animated movies? No, I do know Scooby about them. Do I just didn't know he had been in them. That's ridiculous, yeah, and I obviously need I think, to check that out. I, I think he's in two of them, because I think there's one where the WWE do, like, a wacky racist <gasps> situation. The crossover. I still haven't watched that. Yeah. And there's another <laughs> one where, like, he just comes out of nowhere and stops a boulder <laughs> and saves the gang. It's yeah. it's the funniest shit. Like, I kind of want to go back and just do some of those, because those, those, those look wacky. Yeah. And that is one thing that I um, will say about him that I do actually like. He is quite funny. 
Um, he can be really, really funny and charming. And I think if they are able to do a sequel, if they get the money to do it, which is highly dubious at this point, uh, that would be something to play up a little bit more, maybe. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. I feel like there are two... I do think... Were there reshoots on this film? Do we know? I mean, there are reshoots in every movie. There was was there any news re-script. or buzz about it? There was a re-script for things because of this Scarface okay, because... character that he was supposed to be playing. Yeah, because I do feel like you can break down his scenes. And I do think there are two different characters there. Because when you look at the, oh, this thing's malfunctioning. Oh, I'm sorry. That is a, I mean, someone's got to get in trouble for this. Like, just constantly shooting his buddy and joking around. That scene is definitely a different character to the, I'm in the war room with the general. And after we take advantage of them, I give you permission to kill them. Yes, sir. Yeah. Those are two different characters. Yeah. Very much so. And they don't quite mash well enough together, but I do also think that they've left little enough of the Scarface character in that it doesn't really register into my overall impression of him in this film. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that's part of why his characterization I guess you you call it vestigial tissue of the Scarface (laughs) character. (laughs) That's a terrible pun, but it works so well. Ugh. The non-Bumblebee Transformers. I fucking love them. They're great. Like. They are great. Yeah. Um, first of all, the opening scene on Cybertron. Great. I loved it. Yeah, I really like uh, that. You know, th- there's a kineticism and like frenetic energy to the whole way the whole thing's move. It feels like, especially I think with the color palette, just a tiny bit of the Wachowski Speed Racer in there. Yep. Yep. And that whole sequence was lovely. And I would love to see a Transformers movie in that style. Like, if you actually want to go into this whole thing about, like, oh, yeah, you know, the war on Cybertron and Decepticons, like, full-scale war. Set it there and not on Earth, and I believe it could be way more fantastical. That was one of the things that I was also thinking, and then I was like, no, wait, is this way too nerdy for me to want to hear more about the Transformers lore and, like, what's going on in the war and people sabotaging each other and, you know, just seeing those kind of, like, day-to-day struggles of the war? Maybe that is a little too Ken Burns of me, but I, too, would enjoy a movie set on Cybertron. Hey, I would watch... Band of Autobots. Oh, you know I would watch that too. No, 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 no. Just Band of Bots. <laughs> Band of Bots. Okay, I'll uh, be right back. I'm making a Netflix pitch. <laughs> Band of Bots. No, but also the other thing is I really like how they brought in Transformers from around the series and they made the world feel bigger than, oh, um, everything's on Earth. Like when they kill Cliffjumper on, I think, Saturn? Yeah. That was a great scene. Uh, first of all, like, you had this kind of cynicism and this, like, pragmatic, like, you know, it's a callback to that, you know, like, uh, name, rank, name, rank, serial number. Right, yep. Thing. But also, Cliff Jumper, I would say, is one of the more, obs- he's, he's, like, obscure. the least obscure, obs- he's the least obscure, obscure Transformer. Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. So, like, bringing in, like, I guess you'd probably call him a C-lister. Yeah. And then just killing him. Like, they're recognizable without, like, going to deep dive and, like, here's the UFO one and stuff like that. But they ha- their, their designs were also so much more fun. Um, that one at the beginning, 
is probably one of I think they're called the Sky Jumpers or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's it's not Starscream, but it feels a lot like Starscream. Yeah. Of course, if it was Starscream, he would talk like this. <laughs> Megatron, no. Oh, Starscream. And also, I don't know how this film kind of functions in canon. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a reboot technically and not a prequel. It's it's a prequel. It's classified yeah, as a prequel. Yeah, but did you not did, did you not see the post credit? No. Uh, what? Wait, did I miss something? I thought I saw most um, of that. Well, they they start the credits. They say Travis Knight, directed by Travis Knight, okay. and then there's a, a scene immediately after. Oh. Did you see that scene, or did you get out of the theater that quickly? I no, we sat there for a minute. I just might not be remembering it. Can you remind me what happens? Okay, so Bumblebee and Optimus are walking in the woods. And then Optimus is like, yeah, you did a good job. Ah, future wars. And they look up at the sky and the rest of the Autobots are coming in as meteors. Oh, yeah. Okay, I did see this. Yeah. Yeah, Um, that kind of directly contradicts the first film. Right. Unless the whole thing ends in, unless the, like they try to serialize this to a point where like, okay, and now all the Autobots have, have the memories wiped and be sent back out into space. Which is exactly what I would think would happen. Because it is listed as a prequel and people are treating it that way too. So I wouldn't be surprised if it is. And if they're just kind of like retconning at this point. To get to a different point later on. We'll see. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about as well is in the uh, live action Transformers movies, do you remember there being Lady Transformers before? Transformettes? Uh, okay. okay. It's probably not the best way. So. But Angela Bassett is a goddess, obviously, so. Okay. There is one. <laughs> Except not really, uh-huh. because it's, I don't know much about the comics. Like I said, I have a very casual relationship with the greater Transformers franchise, but there is like a sub-race of like bioengineered slash tiny Transformers who disguise as humans. Remember the one that like tongued the shit out of Shia LaBeouf? <laughs> oh yeah, okay, I remember that one. And then... But I also don't know if that qualifies as a female Transformer, because Disguise Robot could be genderless, could be, like... There was also that queen. L- let's admit it. Oh. Their queen. Whose oh, name I right, remember. the weird goddess the thing, which... The one who looks kind like, of like I Medusa. Thing, yeah, I don't remember. I mean, those were... That was no, the, sorry. The only one Annie? Like... She doesn't look like Medusa, she looks like Shodan. <laughs> okay. That's a deep cut for those of you who don't know. So System deep. Shock 2. Good game. <laughs> So deep. But yeah, those were the only two that I could think of. And so I I do feel like I saw more female Transformers in this movie. Or Transformers voiced by women, I guess. That's a better way to put it. Yeah, Yeah. well, there there was... um, I don't actually know the name of the the evil one. Um, Shatter? Um, Those... Shatter? Yeah. They're Shatter and Dropkick. Which is just like the most hilarious. <laughs> I love Dropkick as a name. Uh, okay, so you had Shatter. You also had, I believe, RC in the beginning uh, during the war scene. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I like how I'm just, like, touching on all this fucking Transformers canon shit when it's just like, I, I really don't know fuck all. <laughs> You're just it. wading into to waters that are far too deep. But I love to swim. <laughs> yeah. Um... Let's let's go back to Bumblebee for a second though. Yeah. Because one of the things, two, two things. One scene I really liked uh-huh. is um, oh yeah yeah it is RC. There's a uh, credit and everything. Uh-huh. Oh my god! Fucking shockwave and soundwave showed up. I forgot about that. <laughs> that was so good. Like they didn't even do anything, but their designs are faithful. They had the fucking cassette fucking ravaged shot out. Uh-huh. It was so good. It was so good. Like this, and this is one of those things where it's like. I, I feel like this is a point of sincerity, mm-hmm. even if there is a cynical element to it to this film, because this is just presenting these childhood figures without, like, really much, I think, pretense or, like, without much shame, I think, is also part of it. Yeah. Like, that's what I feel is something that defines the, the Michael Bay Transformers movies is, first of all, John's whole thing about the 500-page thing about how the, auto, how, about, how the Autobots are ashamed <laughs> of their bodies and the Decepticons aren't. <laughs> But also, like, yeah. as a film, I feel like the Transformers films in general have been ashamed of being Transformers films. Oh, totally. Is it like, no, 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 no. It's not, like, bright plastic to- blocky toys. It's, it's totally like, not. complicated. <laughs> See, it's science fiction. <laughs> mm, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. It's mechanical plates. It's, like, power. It's, it's not robots. It's not giant robots. It's mecha. It's big in Japan. Yeah, it's something like these right? aren't dolls; they're action figures. That's exactly. The vibe I so get. when, so when fucking Soundwave shows up and f- fucking throws out a cassette tape tiger, mm-hmm. I get excited, and it feels like that is genuinely like the filmmakers going, "All right," and here comes the action figures, and they just bashing them together like a fucking five year old, and it's great, and I love that. They don't serve any purpose, really. And in a cynical sense, it's just like, oh, Transformers fans will love that. Perhaps, yeah. It's fan service. But also, it is, I think, fan service in such a way that it's not like, okay, we have done the calculation. This is just like, fuck yeah, let's do this shit. So, back to Bumblebee. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we've digressed. Sorry, sidetrack. Oopsies. Sidetrack would also be a great Transformer name. You know what? That should be <gasps> that my Transformer would be. name. Ugh. You are totally Sidetrack. See, here's here's the problem, Annie. We have until the end of the episode to come up with one for you. So, <laughs> now, that being said, um, one thing I really like about Bumblebee uh-huh. is the fact that he is nonverbal. Yeah, me too. Because they've really pushed his emotive acting here. And this is where all that, you know, early 90s CGI gorilla movie, secret gorilla friend movie DNA comes in, is it's all about communication in nonverbal forms between someone who is used to communicating verbally and someone who cannot. So, like, the whole, like, hands up, you know, no weapon... The, all, all the face touching in particular is very gorilla. Like, and I, I don't think that that's, like, it's, and that's weirdly specific because I feel like that's, I, I don't want to say, who was who the lady in the apes? Jane something. Oh, are you talking about Tarzan and Jane? 
No, 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 no. The researcher. Oh, Jane Goodall? Goodall. Like, there's a little bit of, like, I feel like that kind of trope where it's, like, a trust thing. And I don't... I don't know that that's specifically from her or her research, but I do know, like, that showed up in a lot of things, like, um, I think, like, there's a lot of footage of, like, Coco the gorilla doing stuff like that, but also, like, it's part of the kind of filmic tradition of this as well. And I also could be absolutely wrong about this. No, it shows up in Rampage, too. I just watched that over, uh, like, a week ago, and it definitely shows up there as well. I think it's not only... Something that actually happens in certain ways in nature, but it's become part of the filmic language of how we talk about um, nonverbal communication with animals. So yeah. Now, actually, I do. I think I do have one deep cut here that I think we need to make here. Is bumblebee a child or an animal? I don't actually know the answer to that because the film. Um, moves between the two different, uh, I guess, ways of signifying how we should think about him. Like, I got dog in that scene on the beach where Bumblebee is learning, okay, here's how I transform. Um, And at other times I got, like, a frightened child, like, when he backs into the corner. Um, Oh, that was such a good scene, though. Yeah, that was... They're both really, really good scenes. It's just... It's a question of, I guess, I don't know. Do you feel like they needed to stick with one particular language to figure out how to talk about him? Well, I think part of my issue with um, this as a whole, and I'm, I think I'm kind of okay with it as it rests in the film, but trying to like be more analytical and critical of the film is one of, I think, the issues with Bumblebee as a character in this film, especially compared to the other Transformers film is I'm not sure he's necessarily treated as being in his, as an intelligent or sapient figure a lot of the time. And that I find kind of troubling, especially for the title character, and especially for a character who is so emotive and relatable. Um, yeah, and I actually wanted to bring up something that kind of parallels with that, because, um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the film... The, one of the key themes that this film is dealing with is grief. Um, and I have to say, like, Bumblebee's symptoms of memory loss and fear of touch and some of the other things that he does, um, they do mirror some of the symptoms of PTSD. And I think it's fair to say, like, I don't know that this is definitely a metaphor for that in any way. I don't know that people have put that out there. But I do find it just a tiny bit troubling that there is this mixed metaphor between, you know, a sort of like sentient, um, almost human being-like creature versus this little puppy dog that seems ignorant of the world and how things work. Um, And at times, the characterization felt a little uneven to me. Like, does he or does he not understand, you know, how humans emote? Is he trying to find out how that works or... Uh, what exactly is going on there. There's something just a tiny bit troubling to me that they're switching back and forth between these two codes. Yeah, I, because there's also... I, I think there's another issue. Is because we're remembering Bumblebee as this kind of silent figure. And yet you've got that fun little bit of radio play, which is a fun aspect of it. So there is this, you know, drive to communicate. But one of the things I think is kind of important that we're forgetting 
is that he did start this film with a voice. He started with a character who was much more like, you know, young, gung-ho soldiers, like, I'll never talk. Yeah. Which, by the way, I love the line, let's make that official. Uh, I really yeah. like that line. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a great fight scene. Mm-hmm. And, ah, uh, fucking hell. It, it, yeah, it's no, really he comes good, off like but... a, a young soldier at the beginning of the film, which is why, again, some yes. of the characterization was a little surprising. Yeah, so you you go from young soldier to this kind of, you know, amnesiac, childlike figure, but then you go to, like, the scene on the beach where he's learning to hide, and that's very much like a dumb dog kind of scene. And in the context of, like, looking at this character who started out as, you know, this independent humanoid, humanesque figure, like, an I guess, sapient equal... That to go to this idea where, like, oh, he doesn't understand hiding. Or, like, the fucking, like, the car chase scene where he's just waving. I feel like it really treads on a lot of, you know, like, slow children kind of tropes. And I really don't like that. Yeah, I just... I can't quite pin down what I think is going on there. I think the problem is that they're trying to do too much with the character all in one space... And I think they needed to choose one particular metaphor. Like, I think there's a beautiful story to be told here about a young woman who's like 18 and a totally different species than this robot creature who like connects with this creature who's very, very frightened and has a lot of memory loss and doesn't quite know what's going on and needs to learn the rules of this new universe. I think that's a great storyline. So long as you make it even, you maintain that characterization, I don't feel that they did that here. So, yeah. Yeah. And actually, though, now that we say this, I do feel like there is a little bit more Iron Giant than I was actually thinking. Yeah. Now that we've kind of reflected on this yeah. a little bit. Because, first of all, you do have, like, the battle mode switch going on. Uh, that is something. The blue-eye, red-eye thing? one th- detail I really... Not only that, the, the mask, the hornet oh, mask. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But one of the things, I, one of the details I really loved is that when that comes down, he touches it. Like, he feels... He doesn't realize it there. It's reflexive. Right. Um, whereas if you look at the previous film, like, that's always been an aspect of his design, where it would be, like, this kind of, like, little head shake and this deliberate action to engage it. So... I, I do feel there, there's a touch of that scene where the Iron Giant is looking down at himself as all the guns are retreating back into his body. It's like, what have I done? I am the gun. Oh, no. Yep. Yeah. And, again, this ain't Brad Bird. This is not the Iron Giant, but I'm seeing, I think the comparison is actually more fair than I initially judged it to be. Okay. Okay. And so, like, I do think it has, because one of the things I think is um so actually here's a way I think you could probably resolve this problem. Um I think that you should have leaned into that a little bit harder because one of the things and like especially if you want to push it up as like a PTSD metaphor. Yeah. And maybe this would pull it a little bit out of the children's movie a little mm-hmm. bit because I think the problem is the slapstick. Because like I I think um, so for example, let's, let's, let's look at, I think the two important scenes that kind of really reduce Bumblebee to idiocy that I think create this issue with the characterization. One is the house. Right. The house trashing scene. Two, two is the beach scene. So I think 
with the house, first of all, I love the house seat. I don't really want to take it away, but I feel like you might have to, or you might have to put it in some situation where, like, he recognizes, like, maybe he recognizes the dog as a threat or something and trashes the house before, like, coming out of it and going, oh, wait, no, this thing just wants to lick me or something like that. Um, Because, like, I, I love the scene where he kind of, like, half transforms to slide in the door. Uh, I love that yeah, so that much. Funny. Like, there's so much great physical comedy in there. And I think you can have comedy and have it be violence because making everything that he breaks an accident really paints him as a buffoon. And with the hiding thing, I think what you could do is she says, like, oh, no, people are coming. And she hides behind a rock. Um, You could, because that's a cutaway. You could cut back to him instead of, like, with his head literally in the sand. Like, maybe he's, like, taking, like, a tactical, like, you know, he goes into battle chest mode. high wall cover or something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, goes into battle And then, like, sense. like that would be very serious and very grim. But I think there that gives Charlie a chance to be, like, you know, hey, no, 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 no. We hide, remember? This is easier than this. Just chill out. Just relax. Just transform, right? So I do think that you could keep the overall structure intact without painting Bumblebee as a buffoon. Yeah, and... Because I feel like those two scenes yeah. are the most damning right. of his character. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I think that the reason why they're mixing metaphors so much here is basically what we were saying before. Like, this is intentionally marketed as a children's movie. I have no doubt that there were probably some things that were cut from this movie to make it um, a PG-13, like, a very, like, smooth PG-13 rating. Um, probably for marketing reasons. So I'm suspecting that that's why this all has gone on. So, See, here here is the issue I have with this kind of like rating gaming system is I do think that there are distinct categories of children's movies and movies that children gravitate to or enjoy or relate to. Um, it's kind of like that... Uh, Bob Iger thing where it's like, oh, you know, we are here to make profit, but we will sometimes by necessity make art is this idea that there are a lot of movies that aren't made for children, which children love. And there are a lot of movies that are made specifically for children, which are just bad movies because they are assumed to have a level of leeway and so on that prevent them from being enjoyed by other people. And so I think in particular, and this is me maybe like pulling a Lucy and harping on my own vision a little bit, but I do think in modern America, it is relevant for there to be movies that children relate to about, you know, PTSD and stuff because we have such a high veteran population and that this is a relevant part of our society. So to, so to have this, you know, 18-year-old character relating to what is essentially a veteran and dealing in, like, healthy and supportive ways with his PSD and not him being a dog. Yes. I think would it would keep the film intact. Exactly. And it would actually be quite meaningful because one of the things also is, semiotically, the Transformers are also very linked with the military, especially with the modern incarnation with the Michael Bay films because they've always been linked to, like, these military operations and, like, the first one starts in Iraq, for fuck's sake. Or was it Afghanistan? I think it was Afghanistan. Uh, Yeah, I don't remember, actually. Um, Yeah, no, I agree. I think (laughs) there was room to tell a real story in here. (laughs) 
But that's what I meant about the marketing is that a lot of times what you'll find will happen is that, you know, like you don't just have people from the Transformers property here. Like you've got people from the WWE property here supervising to make sure that Cena doesn't go off brand for his face character. So like there are a lot of competing interests in this movie, which I think, to be honest to me, prevented it from telling a story that needs to be told because as you were mentioning before, PTSD is a major, major issue for a lot of the population, especially for our veterans who are not exactly receiving the kind of treatment that they should be receiving. And, um, you know, I don't know, it just makes me wish, you know, it makes me wish they could have told that. But again, I think marketing got in the way. Yeah. I think for me... When I'm looking at this film, there's one thing I'm thinking in particular is that I kind of do hope this does get some sequels um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, I feel like they will eventually, no matter what happens, even if they have to wait 10 years for the franchise to die down, that there will be more Transformers movies. It's too hot of a property. It's too merchandisable. Now, that being said... I feel like I still think this is a reboot, like in my mind, at least calling it a prequel, I think is probably just marketing buzz. If you ask me, because it's directly contradicts a lot of stuff and the aesthetics are different enough. Now, that being said, I think if we consider this a new chapter, if we separate like, you know, say hypothetically, they bring Travis Knight back on and I kind of hope they do. I don't think they will. But if you had the Bay Transformers and the Knight Transformers, (laughs) <laughs> Bay and night. <laughs> um, but I feel like this is a much more promising start to a franchise. Yeah, I mean, I think this has, like I said before, a lot more heart than the other movies did. There's, um, And there's the story is, as a result, a lot more grounded than I felt like Bay's stories were. Like, Bay's were all about, you know, the muscularity of the American military uh, flexing itself across the desert. And um, this is not that. This seems to be a story about people and drawing these very intimate connections with beings from another place. And I think that's a good place to start a new franchise if they want to. I just don't know that it's going to happen. Because this movie is not done particularly awesome in comparison to the other films around it, right? It's We're at... Uh, what is this, week one and a half for it? And it's in third place because Mary Poppins and Aquaman, which apparently people also like for some reason. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not super sure that this is going to get sequels, but I do have to say when comparing this to the Michael Bay movies, I would have preferred that this movie get the sequels than Bay's. Oh, one second, one second. I just want to check one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I want to check... Oof, yeah, no, there's no sequel. Yeah. There's absolutely no yeah. sequel. Because I was just trying to... Uh, you know what, let's compare this to like some of the later shittier... It's like, yeah, Age of Extinction did 100 mil. This did 21. That's, that's fucking gone. Yeah. That's like that 
it doesn't matter if this movie turns a profit with an opening weekend like that. Travis Knight is not working on this franchise again. Oh, yeah, no. No. And Which is a shame. It is, because I think, again, this is better than some of the older stuff, so. Which is also kind of funny, because when you look at this, this film is also, I think, a lot more toyetic than the other films. So I think this one actually might definitely make a pretty solid buck in merchandising. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I have no doubt that they'll be selling more Bumblebee toys. Um I mean, it is also possible, and I don't think this is the case, but I think if Hasbro, for example, were really savvy, or um, what, what studio puts these out, actually? Like, what? Paramount. Well, not studio, distributor. Um, But, like, if Paramount and Hasbro were really savvy, I do think that you could say you'd be willing to take a hit and do a slow build, but let's be real. Capitalists will only accept short-term profit. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I feel like that's something that, like, Star Wars is doing, for example, where until J.J. fucks it up, <laughs> I do feel like The Last Jedi was a point where they could weather a bit of a storm to build something better. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but I don't think they have the I don't think they have the balls to hold against us any kind of backlash. No. Especially not financial backlash, which is sad. Like... Uh, see, this is making me sad. This is um, is not something I had really had in mind at the beginning of the recording, <laughs> where yeah. I'm just like, ah, uh, you know, what could have been? Because I enjoyed this. I did. But now it's just like, there's a little bit more sadness to it. Well, hopefully this doesn't add more sad to your sad. I wanted to talk very briefly about some of the differences that I see between this film and previous Transformers films when it comes to the way that they treat their black characters. Um, so... Anybody who's listened in on previous episodes where I've talked about this probably knows my beef with Michael Bay. He leans super, super hard into racist stereotypes, and oftentimes black men are set up as these figures that the audience is supposed to laugh at, or is supposed to think is cool, um, but not much else. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about this movie is the character of Memo, who is this quirky, sweet, socially awkward black nerd. Um, that's a great characterization to go with for this character, and I like that this is kind of um, an interracial love story to a certain extent. And, you know, it's great that they have chosen a character that pushes back at some of the things that Michael Bay had done in previous films, but I also have to say, as much as I like this character, there is an extent to which there is some erasure of his identity that is going on in the screenplay, and I don't know why it's happening, but I can just tell you that it is happening from watching the film. Um, so, a couple things. First of all, there's a scene where there's some hair shaming, and I really, really do not like that. Um, if you want to read more about the politics of black hair, please read Cobbin and Mercer's uh, Black Hair Style Politics. It's a really interesting article. And um, what's going on in the scene is Memo and uh, Charlie are at Memo's room and Memo feels like he has to hide his hair products and he actually claims that they're his sisters. And these are products that he's using to care for his fro, obviously. So on, you know, there's two levels to it where it's kind of like he's passing it off on his sister and he's also ashamed of having to use these products to a certain extent and that's just really not great especially when you have 
young members in the audience, like potentially young black kids seeing this, like I, that's not cool. That's really not cool. I wish this could have been a moment of pride for Memo, but it wasn't, it was a moment of shaming. And on top of that, you know, the writing for Memo feels a little bit whitewashed in some places. Like he says things that don't really make sense for a young black man who is growing up in California during the 1980s. Obviously, anybody who knows anything about this history and the lives of black people during this period in California knows um, it was not a good time for them. And especially when it came to the police, it was really not a good time. Uh, So to have a young black man tell Charlie we should go to the police because they can obviously help us, that's not a line that makes sense for this character. And the reason why I'm bringing these things up is because I think it's important that, you know, it's we have to have characters like Memo, and I really like him, but I wanted him to be more well-rounded, and it just sounded like the writers didn't have the experience or knowledge to write for a character like him. So in the future, I hope that they'll bring on people who do. Yeah. And all of that is absolutely fair. Um, but I, I have issues kind of reconciling that because I like George Lindeborg, mm-hmm. George Lindeborg Jr.'s role in this. I like Memo as a character. Um, like, you know, he's cute. And like, yeah, there's also like a little degree of like, not even just body and hair shame, but like, I think it's painted as being somewhat uh, emasculating or feminizing as well. Like, there, there's some more subtle issues there. There are places where he's but, made to cower and look kind of weak, which, uh, that's a major trope with nerd culture in general, but it's kind of cast at his expense, and it's for a laugh from the audience, which is not particularly great. So, I don't know, I, I just think we can write these characters without emasculating them or, like, trying to erase their identity and I, I think the way this kind of lives in my mind is I recognize these issues and I do have a problem with yeah. them. Yeah. But they're also, I think, they're metatextual for me. They're not something that I think about while I'm watching. They're something that comes up when I go back and look over the pieces. And so while it is something to be discussed and it is something that I think Ethley should not stand as is, it's also something that doesn't necessarily take away from my filmic experience. And I, like I said, and I still like the performance and I still like the character and there are, it's, 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 it's complicated. There's no like, oh no, if you think this, you're right. If you think this, you're wrong. It's just like, it's a mixed bag. Okay. So one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was how you felt about the ending where she's kind of like, uh, don't touch my hand. We're not there yet. Um, cause I, I think it's an interesting sentiment, but I also think that it's a weird emotional beat to immediately fade to black on at the end of a film. I like that. Okay. Like, it's, it's, it's cute. Like, one of the things I think it, it's kind of, it, it's weird how like this kind of reactionary like trip and um, play on like the old 80s stereotype is like, and now you get the girl has become kind of corporate standard. But I do think it is important to um, show like, because one of the things I like is it's not just a shutdown; it's a it's a negotiation. Yeah, it's like we're and not there I yet. I like obviously. that. Obviously, yeah. It it's it's sweet, it's cute, it's harmless, and it's a mode that is new and starting to creep into film, which I think is a healthy standard for people to start accepting as a society. Yeah. 
I think it's also a refusal it is a little of cynical. the past it is a little... movies as well, because Megan Fox was so yeah. hypersexualized by not only um, Bay himself, but also by a lot of the fan base too. And there's just kind of like this presumptiveness about her body and all these kinds of things. And I, I think that's probably what the ending was trying to get at. But like, I, I, I like that as a general broad societal trend in film. I like this idea that we're having more of a conversation about consent, about boundaries, yeah, and especially about negotiation. This is one of those things. Remember we talked about Fright Night? Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. how it was like, yeah, <laughs> like the vampire is kind of rapey, but also one of the things that happens is there he's actually better than the boy <laughs> because there is, even if it's not verbal and explicit, there is a negotiation of boundaries yeah. that happens on screen. Yeah, I remember and so. That. With this new, like, wave of focus on hand-holding and, you know, relationship being able to be romantic or platonic or some mix of the two sure. without being explicitly romances going up to 60 right, right away. I like that. Oh, how did you feel about the sciency guy, the scientist, the doctor guy who betrayed humanity unwittingly <laughs> for science? And he's kind of not really a character. I don't particularly yeah. care. Like the the whole military section of the movie, I feel like not well fleshed ma- out. No, I, I I feel like what you could have done really is you could have kept them a lot more off screen. Just yeah, I feel like maybe that opening scene with Cena, keep that, and yeah. then like just cut down on the whole like military organization. Like, I think, actually, you could have had, like, the military checkpoint where they stop uh, the Decepticons and then just take me to your leader and then have them, like, just show up with, like, the um, thing. I don't think the whole, like, double cross, oh, we're going to exploit them, we're going to rip them apart. I feel like also a lot of that, I think what that contributed to was this kind of mercenary attitude and this kind of, like, pragmatic xenophobia of um, John (laughs) Cena's character. And so with that cut, I do feel like there's not much focus to those scenes. Yeah. And again, we're looking at like a gorilla movie. It's a fucking gorilla movie. So when, you know, the fuzz <laughs> comes to take away your pet gorilla, that's like animal control. That's the government. It's a kids movie. You don't specifically define like, is this animal control? Is this the police? Is this the federal government? Right. You just say yeah. like, bad men in cars show up and took away my friend. Now I'm going to go break into the lab and save him. Yeah. Which is literally what happens, except there's a little bit more torture. Right. Oh, poor Bumblebee. Yeah. So, like... (sighs) Yeah, I was just kind of like, uh, it's weirdly anti-intellectualist and just kind of like, look at these darn elites betraying the human race again. And it was just kind of boring and it lacked depth or any sense of really, you know narrative nuance and i was just kind of like okay i'm not I, sure why this is here i will say i do i i do think dr powell is a useful idiot in like a basically flanderized way it's like but think of how much we could learn from them oh they've changed so much like he's you know missing the forest for the trees pointing guns at him yeah, yeah. but one thing that i do like because he doesn't have much of a character but one thing i do like is his conscious desire to convey information and save the world in face of certain death. I do think yeah. that has an element of heroism that to it. Was that it's a very small scene, but I think it's good. 
Yeah, I like that too. So I think that might just kind of wrap us up on this one. I'm sure there's more to talk about, mm-hmm. but like this was both more and less interesting than I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that always the case? Such a great recommendation for this yeah. film. Um, do you think people should go and see this in theaters? I think so, especially like, well, like we're coming, we're coming to this late. We, we're starting the new year, but definitely, first of all, like as an animator and as someone who's a big fan of Travis's night's work, I want this to be successful. I do, because I think this has a lot more heart than the Bay films and I want it to be successful. So from a, do we like this art and do we want more of it? And do we want it to be supported? Yes. Is it worth seeing? I think so. There's a lot of really nice spectacle. There are some really nice shots in it. And also, like, it's Transformers. Transformers, I think, as a whole filmic franchise, is something that is better on the big screen because these characters are so large and full. I don't think it's the same thing to watch this on, like, a 24-inch TV than it is to watch it on, a like, a big fucking theater screen. So I think... Like, especially the Cybertron segments, and especially some of the bigger, more bombastic fights, I don't think... They're spectacle. It is spectacle. And I I think maybe a more important question is, Annie, do you think kids should watch this movie? See, now it's complicated. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm actually a little bit more hesitant with kids. There were a lot of kids at my showing, and... I don't know. They didn't seem to really take anything away from it other than like, oh, there's Bumblebee and Bumblebee is adorable and awesome. And um, I don't know. To be honest, I feel like this is a children's movie and yet it's written in the 80s. So it maybe appeals to somebody more of my age um, or slightly older who remembers those times but kind of also not enough to matter. So I guess take your kids, but uh, also explain things to them, like some of the stuff that we've talked about. (laughs) I mean, my thought is, I don't think, like, I don't think this is a seminal work that your children should absolutely see. (laughs) I think your kids will enjoy it. And I also think it's not a bad thing for them to see. Uh, in particular, like yeah. we said, a lot of the, compared to 80s fare, and especially compared to, like, you know, the original Transformers movies. Okay, I'm sorry. The Bay Transformers movies. I know there was a 1986 <laughs> animated movie. We'll do that someday. But You like, can don't, just don't, call them Bayformers. Yeah. It's fine. Um, there's a lot healthier attitudes about a lot of things. Yep, I think and so, too, especially for young women. I think, yeah. I think that's nice, because one of the things I think, and I think this is just kind of a general film conversation, is making kids watch the movies you watched growing up is generally speaking not the greatest idea. Nope. No, it's um, not. It's first bad. of all, filmmaking <laughs> has come a long way. And especially for children, like, the attention spans and the kind of media environment we grow up in, there's a lot of older films that kids just cannot stand. They don't have the patience for it. And that's not, I think, a judgment call, but like, ah, kids these days, oh, they're iPhones. But... The fact is, like, we live in an environment that is so full of media saturation and stimulation that filmmaking has evolved to kind of move beyond that. And so, like, even me, like, movies I loved as a kid, there are some where I'm just like, this is too slow. I don't give a shit. Like, you know, I have better (laughs) things to do with my time. Yeah. But also beyond that, a lot of the societal stuff in older films is really dated 
and can be like Very I'm not toxic. going to say oh yeah to- toxic yes but I, I want to be clear about the definitions of to- toxicity there is that I think it is a gradual thing and it's not like oh if your kid ever watches weird science he's gonna be a misogynist so don't like you know <laughs> no but like no, if, if you're so. if, if your kid watches you know weird science and species and shit like that like then you know you're gonna you're gonna be filling them with a media landscape of like you know sexist crap or you know fucking yeah. white white as shit stuff like there, there's a yeah. lot of like yeah i, 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 mean, I just I talk to your kids just yeah, talk I, to your darn kids <laughs> Please. But, but why am I showing my kids movies if I want to talk to them? God. No, but I think what's important <laughs> here is to look at not each piece individually, but look at the kind of landscape you're creating. And this is why I think it is important to make new movies for children and to update things. And also, like, I also think just, like, trying to turn your kid into a tiny version of you is weirdly, like, psychotic. Yes, it is. It is. Literally like Psycho. Literally. But yeah. I enjoyed this though. This was... This was fun. And... Yeah. I wasn't expecting much out of this. Really. Mm-hmm. Like it was Travis Knight, mm-hmm. but it's also still a Transformers film. But there's enough heart in there that... I definitely think this is worth seeing. I have to agree. I have also, to agree. Also, you get to see Optimus Prime and Bumblebee snuggle at the end. Isn't it great? Yeah. For the record, on that scene at the end when they're driving along the Golden Gate Bridge together, they are absolutely snuggling. Heartwarming. Yep. Okay. So, this has been the Movie More, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Silvio Emery. And I've been your co-host, Annie Neller. You guys can follow us on Twitter. At Movie Morecast, you can follow me on Twitter or Twitch.tv, where I stream video games five days a week. At DoubleDocMD, Annie, where can people find you? People can always find me on Twitter and on Instagram at at Lights and Music. That's at Lights E N Music, and it's all one word and all lower caps. If you've enjoyed our work um, and would like to support us, please by all means like, re- like, subscribe, and review us wherever good podcasts are sold. Do not buy our podcast. If you paid money for this podcast, you have been ripped off. I'm so sorry. Uh, That being said, if you want to go a step further and you actually do want to pay for the podcast, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash doubledocmd. That keeps us in server space and celluloid and lets us keep doing this. Regardless, thank you guys so much. Our intro music, as always, is Ipso Factopus by... Sorry, is Trouble by Ipso Factopus. Find a link to their Bandcamp in the EP of the same name in the description. Um, and uh, thank you guys so much. We love each and every one of you. You guys are great. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.